Good morning. My name is Kent Lotus, and I want to tell you a story about how Jesus showed me how much he loves me by laughing in my face. And first, some background here. I'm a pretty rational guy. I'm a software engineer, which means I get paid to think clearly and carefully and correctly. Things need to make sense. So of course, that's how I've approached my faith all my life. God needs to make sense. I wrestle with the logic of it all, and for the most part, I have a pretty solid, reasonable, rational faith, which is all fine, but there's a downside. All my life, I really have had no experience of what it means to feel loved by God or to feel love for God. And all my life, singing songs like we just sang, songs about gazing into the eyes of Jesus and his beautiful face just made no sense to me. I just didn't resonate with that at all. Not to say that it's not real, it just like wasn't my thing at all. And here's what I want you to know, leading into this story. I am not some sort of weirdo, woo-woo, mystic, new age, whatever, okay? That's just not me. Or at least I wasn't. This all started changing five years ago. February 2nd, 2015, up until then was probably the worst day of my life. I woke up that Monday morning with the same thought that many of you had, which is, why on earth would you throw with second and goal from the one-yard line? Why? Why? Remember that day? But that was really just the least of my cares that day. Um, my relationship with my adult children was ragged and frayed and bitter. My marriage was falling apart. I'd been unemployed for a few months and had gotten a new job, but it was ripping my heart out. On a daily basis, I wanted to quit. But worst of all, and on that day, my dad was dying of cancer. His chemo wasn't working. Uh, we were going to see the oncologist the next day, and we were bracing ourselves for the news that the chemo wasn't working, it was time to switch to palliative and hospice care. So our family had agreed to meet that night for dinner and to just talk through what the next few days and weeks were going to look like. And as the firstborn, it was my job to sort of walk the family through this process. So I got out of bed, shook the Super Bowl woes off my head, and muscled through another brutal day at work, gritted my teeth, didn't quit. Um, it so happened that we had a marriage counseling session for that day, which turned out to be especially depressing and discouraging. So I drove over to my parents' place for dinner, pulled into the driveway, killed the engine, put my head back and did what every good Christian is supposed to do at a moment like this. I prayed. And my prayer went something like this. Dear God, where the heck are you when I need you? Except I didn't say heck. I was done. I was gassed. I had no energy. I did not know 
how I was going to make it through the next few hours. But I put one foot in front of the other, walked inside, gave my mom and dad a hug, and sat down on the couch, and I thought, if I could just get a quick little power nap, maybe somehow I can find it in me to navigate these next few hours. So, this is where things started to get weird. I uh, sat down on the couch, put my head back, closed my eyes, and I'm, I'm a pretty good power napper, so I dozed off, and then I started awake because somebody was laughing. And I looked around the room, and my dad's dozing in his recliner, and mom's putzing in the kitchen, and I thought, okay, that was weird, whatever. And I went back to sleep, and there it was again, somebody laughing. But this time, I didn't really wake up or open my eyes because I got this very clear sense that Jesus was standing right in front of me. And now I can't tell you what he looked like because it, I wasn't exactly having a vision, but I just got this very clear sense that Jesus was standing right in front of me, right in my face, laughing with the kindest, gentlest eyes that seemed to say, you think I don't know what it's like to suffer alone and forsaken. You think. And then I snapped awake again and thought, okay, this is it. I'm finally having that nervous breakdown I've been waiting for. Um, and I looked around the room and everything was just normal. And I thought, okay, I just really need that nap now. So I went back to sleep and this time I fell asleep napped for five or ten minutes, woke up. By then, my wife had showed up. I went over to start helping with dinner, and then I realized something really strange had happened. All of that anguish and despair and loneliness had evaporated. And all I could feel was this profound, I want to say bottomless sense of peace and strength we sat down for dinner, and I was carrying on the conversation. I kept thinking, what is happening to me? Because I was so present and comfortable and calm. And as the evening went on, and we started talking with my dad about where he wanted to be buried and whether he wanted to be cremated or what kind of memorial service we were supposed to have, part of me was going, what is going on with you? You're actually experiencing joy in the middle of all this. My dad died two weeks later, and throughout those two weeks and in the weeks that followed, there were memorials to plan and lawyers to talk to and paperwork to fill out and finances to plan for and my mother to comfort. And throughout that whole time, all I could think about was how on earth do I feel so strong and confident and peaceful and joyful in the middle of all this? That was five years ago, and honestly, life's only gotten harder. The waters around me have gotten deeper and darker. Some of you know some of the tragedy in my family even these last few months. But that sense of Jesus being next to me, and that wasn't the last time he laughed in my face, has stuck with me, and, and I've come to understand what it means to feel loved by God. Weird story, huh? 
This is what I love about this time, is we get to listen to each other's weird stories. So thank you for listening to my weird story. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Galatians. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. And at Julie's special request, I'll be reading from both the international version and the message out of Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. So if you have either of those handy, grab them. First, the NIV. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed, clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And now the same passage from the message paraphrase. Until the time when we were mature enough to respond freely in faith to the living God, we were carefully surrounded and protected by the Mosaic law. The law was like those Greek tutors with which you are familiar, who escort children to school and protect them from danger or distraction making sure the children will really get to the place they are set out for. But now you have arrived at your destination. By faith in Christ, you are in direct relationship with God. Your baptism in Christ was not just washing you up for a fresh start. It also involved dressing you in an adult faith wardrobe, Christ's life, the fulfillment of God's original promise. In Christ's family, there can be no division into Jew and non-Jew, slave and free, male and female. Among us, you are all equal. That is, we are all in a common relationship with Jesus Christ. Also, since you are Christ's family, then you are Abraham's famous descendant, heirs, according to the covenant promises. The word of the Lord. Good morning, I am Julie Steele, one of the pastors here, and I am, how, how do I follow Kent? I don't know, like that's not really even fair. <laughs> that was a great story, Kent. Thank you for sharing with us. This morning we are finishing up our series in the book of uh, Galatians of our six affirmations. The sixth one, the last one, is freedom in Christ. Now, just so you know, uh, I want to go back a little bit. Brian Krell and I decided it was hallelujah, not alleluia. But since it is freedom in Christ, you are free to believe something that isn't quite true. That's okay. All right. 
So these six affirmations that we have been going through are what the covenant denomination and Evergreen identifies with. I want to do just a little bit of a review going backwards here. We started with the centrality of the Word of God. We believe that the Old and New Testament scriptures are the Word of God and is the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. The life-shaping power of God's Word has been at the heart of the covenant denomination from the very beginning. One of the catalysts, actually, for the formation of the denomination was the belief that all followers of Christ would be studying and reading the Bible on their own and not just hearing what someone else interpreted as. Next, we had the necessity of the new birth. New birth in Jesus Christ is one of the essentials. You're going to hear me talking about non-essentials and essentials later on. This is one of the essentials. We teach that by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God conquered sin, death, and Satan, offering forgiveness for sin and assuring us that eternal life. If you remember, Jesus told Nicodemus that in order to see the kingdom of God, he had to be born again. Spiritual birth happens when we make a conscious decision to believe our way of life behind where we are our own God and we choose to follow Jesus and make him our God. Then we heard about the commitment to the whole mission of the church. We believe that the church is not just about discipleship and not just about justice, but it's both. It's the personal and cultural transformation that happens in a church. Now, there's always been a tension in all churches as to what the church should be doing. We are to go and make disciples and also do justice and love mercy. That's the whole gospel. Then we had the affirmation that the church as a fellowship of believers. We are a communion or fellowship of followers of Jesus Christ. We are a gathered community set apart for the involvement in Christ's mission in the world. We're not simply an institution or an organization, but a people whom God has called. We are to encourage each other, pray for each other, gather together with each other so that we can serve God together. We need each other to fulfill the mission of God. And last week, we heard about the dependence on the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of the living God, we can do nothing. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to instill in the human heart the desire to turn to Christ and then conform to his image. Our dependence on the Spirit gives us the power to do what we cannot do humanly. The Spirit is our comforter, our guide. He reveals all truth to us. And it is by the power of the Spirit that the church has its life. And then today we are looking at the reality of the freedom in Christ. The Covenant Church seeks to focus on what unites Christians rather than what separates them. And there's a whole lot that can separate us. The center of our commitment is a clear faith in Jesus Christ. That is an essential. The affirmations, though, form the parameters in which freedom is experienced. 
Here, followers of Christ find security to offer freedom to others also on things that might divide us. The mission statement that we have been using that comes from the covenant, covenant is deeper in Christ, further in mission, together. It is this particular affirmation, freedom in Christ, that allows us to do this together. First, we're gonna look at our individual freedom in Christ and then our communal freedom in Christ. As Kent read for you these verses in Galatians, until the time when we were when we were mature enough to respond freely in faith to the living God, we were carefully surrounded and protected by the Mosaic law. That's the Old Testament scriptures. Paul is telling his readers here that there were laws in place to protect them and us from straying away from God. The Old Testament scriptures had lots of laws, but they all were for the protection of the people. But then he says, but now you have arrived at your destination. By faith in Christ, you are in direct relationship with God. And so all those laws were not needed anymore. Christ came not to abolish them, but he fulfilled them. We are all of a sudden freed from the law that we couldn't keep anyway for a life that God had always intended us to have. When was the last time you got something for free? Think about that. We all love anything for free. Whether we want it or what, it's free, so we want it. I have several cards in my wallet that if I get just enough stamps on them, I'm gonna get that free piece of pizza, that free cup of coffee, or that free sandwich. Do you know how much I need to buy to get something for free? The more we buy, the more we get free. I'm gonna spend a lot of money to get that one free thing. That's not the kind of free that we are talking about here because the freedom that we have in Christ didn't cost us anything, but it cost Jesus everything. We have the freedom in Christ because of the price he paid because now we can approach the throne of God, God, the creator of the universe, because the law has been fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ. See, now we can come boldly and confidently into God's presence, which is not what was happening in the Old Testament. Jesus tells us that it is in being faithful to his teachings that we obtain true freedom. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You see, we are now free from the slavery of sin because Jesus' teachings tell us right from wrong. It's not that we aren't tempted to sin anymore, that's not true, Jesus was tempted, we are still tempted, it's that we now are free to turn from engaging in that sin. Because when the spirit is in us, we have the power to turn away and say no. He sets us free from the power of sin that condemns, it controls, and it destroys. I have heard many of your stories about being set free from a habit or a pattern 
that was controlling or destroying you. And I know there are times when I am tempted to say or do something that's going to destroy me or somebody else. It feels like I am being controlled by my own sinful desires instead of the teachings of Jesus, which are for my benefit. And it's in those moments I have a choice. I can give in to what feels right or good or my impulse, or I can call on the Holy Spirit to help my desire be to turn away from that action. You see, I am free then to do or not do what would be Christ-like. That is true freedom. We are also free from the guilt of our sinful actions. First John says that if we, are, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, the reality of freedom in Christ, it's freedom from the power of sin, but it's also freedom from guilt. Is that your reality? Are you experiencing true freedom, or are you carrying guilt around? I don't know about you, but I tend to play back over and over all the ways I have given in to temptation. I have a hard time believing that I'm forgiven because I don't feel worthy to be forgiven. And then I allow the guilt to control me. Or, because I'm a complicated person, I can seemingly justify an innocuous sin that seems very small and inconsequential. As long as I do that, I am a slave to sin. You see, in both of these scenarios, I am rejecting the freedom in Christ that he is offering me. Freedom in Christ, though, it's not just an individual freedom, it's also communal. You see, these last verses say, in Christ's family, there can be no division into Jew and non-Jew, slave and free, male and female. Among us, you are all equal. That is, we are all in common relationship with Jesus Christ. We are set free from the restrictions of culture to live into a new reality. Jesus broke all the social norms by including women in his ministry, healing on the Sabbath, dining with tax collectors, and many more scandalous things. Because he ushered in a kingdom that deemed everyone equal. The social hierarchy was abolished. There is another aspect to our reality of freedom in Christ, though, and it's offering that same freedom to one another to have different interpretations on matters that the covenant calls the non-essentials. This freedom is very distinct to our denomination. So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure you stay free and don't get tied up again in the slavery of the law. And we can even make up new laws. You see, we tend to claim that there are biblical mandates when it's just our preference or tradition. Freedom in Christ means extending freedom to others to hold a different point of view when there can be a variety of interpretations on God's purpose and will. 
This can sound very squishy. That's a theological term that you learn in seminary. But it is just being humble enough to recognize we don't have all the answers. I've said before that the older I get and the more I know, the more I realize I don't know anything. Being black and white on everything is much easier and cleaner than living in the tension of having several possible interpretations. We need to stay free, as this verse says, from dictating to others our opinions and preferences. Here are some examples of where we can get tied up in creating our own laws and biblical mandates. Baptism, infant versus believer. We see both in scripture. We see individuals getting baptized, and we see whole families getting baptized. And that most likely, we don't know, included children who were not old enough to make that decision for themselves. What we do know to be true and clear is that baptism is all about what God has done for us on our behalf, and we are commanded to be baptized. Communion, we have open communion here, which means Anyone who believes in Jesus and is a follower of him, we invite to partake in communion. Some churches offer communion every week, some once a month like us. You see, we're not told how often to take communion, but what we are told is that when we do partake, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. That's the essential piece. And speaking about him coming again, how many different theories are there on the second coming? There are so many on this one. Okay, I'm gonna date myself a little bit. How many of you read the Left Behind series books years ago? Anybody? Oh, okay, a few of you. Well, we all thought, oh, this is how it's gonna all go down, right? Well, we really don't know. There's premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, dispensational millennial, and many more theories. Here's what I know to be true. Jesus is returning. That's it. Okay, creation. Here's another one that we can differ on. Six days, evolution, thousands of years, millions of years. It goes on and on. This is the one that I see the most fear around. For some reason, we think that if someone doesn't agree with our interpretation of exactly how God created things, they're not a Christian, and it really threatens our own convictions. I'll just tell you, I've done a lot of research on this one, and I know the truth, and here it is. Write it down. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I don't know how, I don't know when, and I don't care. He did it, and someday we're gonna find out the details. The essential is God created everything. The last one, and I know there's more, though I'm going to look at, is the theory of atonement. There are at least eight theological beliefs on the atoning work of Christ, how this happens. And there are verses to support all of them. The atonement of Christ, though, it's a mystery. We are not comfortable with mysteries. We want to point to a verse and say, this is what makes sense. But I don't think God really cares if something makes sense to us. 
What matters is that we believe that what Christ did on the cross saved us from eternal life without him. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't care about these things, we shouldn't study these things. We should as Christians. I'm just saying that if you arrive at a different conclusion than someone else, that's okay. They're all essentials, but the method is what's the non-essential. Baptism, communion, the return of Jesus, creation and atonement, yes, they are essential to our Christian faith, but we can differ on how they are played out. Now, we are free to come to our own conclusions and still be in the body of Christ. So are there any other essentials? Well, essentials are what we say are tied to our salvation. So believing that Jesus was God incarnate, that's an essential. Jesus is God, fully human, fully God at the same time. He is the truth, the life, and the way. That is an essential. But here's where things get messy. What happens when your essential is my non-essential? That's where we're tested on our extending freedom to our brothers and sisters in Christ. As an example, I'm a covenant pastor and I can hold my own personal view on baptism, but for the sake of the unity of the body of Christ, I will do infant baptism and believer baptism, sprinkling and immersion. The method doesn't matter. What matters is the baptism. Another aspect of our freedom is that we are not to flaunt it. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. We need to be sensitive to others who might consider a behavior wrong, especially those who are newer believers. We are free to eat and drink and do many things that we want to do, but should we? This is a huge issue in cross-cultural ministry. Be sensitive to not being a stumbling block to someone else seeing Christ in you. The reality of freedom in Christ gives us an opportunity to practice staying at the table when we have differing opinions on spiritual issues as well as life issues. I don't know if you've noticed, but we have entered a political season here, and what better opportunity do we have to live out this affirmation? We span the entire political spectrum in this room right now. How can we allow everyone to have their opinion and still be in the body of Christ? We can be the church, the universal church, in our culture by not contributing to the polarization that has permeated it. How do we live in such a way that shows we can stay at the table together? As the famous theologian Bud Palmberg said, Keep the main thing the main thing. As we begin the season of Lent, 
I also want to encourage you to think about what you can be free of so that you are free to add something. You say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. There are things that I'm going to be giving up to allow myself to take more focus on Christ. There are things I'm allowed to do. They're not bad things. There are things, though, that God has said, for a time, you need to set these aside so that you can focus on me more. And I am also adding in a midday prayer time. I don't know about you, but I read my devotional in the morning, and by noon, I have no idea what I read that morning. So God has convicted me on that, and I'm going to set out time in the middle of the day to go someplace and read all over again and pray. And I am really excited about starting that new regime. Well, what I want to do is go back to these affirmations and just wrap up with a thought here. Identity is critical. As we close out this series, these affirmations give us clear identity as individuals and as a church. Knowing who you are and who you are not lays the foundation for how you behave. I've been thinking about my own identity and if others, if they would see my actions or behavior reflecting these affirmations. You see, if I believe in the centrality of the word of God, I'm probably gonna be spending a significant amount of time in it, aren't I? And if I believe in dependence on the Holy Spirit, am I going to be functioning out of my own power or am I going to be depending on the Spirit for my power? You could go down the list and ask yourself questions about all of these affirmations. But I want to extend it to our church now. These affirmations should define who we are as a church, no matter who is in the pulpit or who is in leadership, because they transcend culture, style, and trends, no matter what season we are in. Continuing to live out these affirmations will give us focus and purpose. They will help us go deeper in Christ and further in mission together as a church. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the freedom that you have offered us. We thank you, God, that we can live freely in you every day and we can extend that freedom to others. I pray now, Lord, that as we do enter this Lenten season, each of us would examine what you're calling us to be free from so that we can be free to focus more on you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.